to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 12, Mexican San Antonio. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city San Antonio, tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. In the summer of 1822, a somber procession of San Antonians marched southwest out of town. Nearly every family in town was represented in the convoy. As they reached the Medina River and its oak groves, half-buried partial skeletons began to appear in the brush as if the dead were trying to dig their way out of their graves. In truth, however, many of these dead had never known a grave. The hundreds, perhaps as many as a thousand skeletons scattered throughout the brush and concentrated on one particularly thick and sandy oak grove had been exposed to the elements for almost a decade now by order of the same General Arredondo who had massacred them. It had been a part of his policy of terror against San Antonians, along with the executions of some 300 civilians, meant to teach San Antonians the cost of rebellion. The irony, of course, was that by 1822, General Arredondo was now technically a rebel himself. He retained his authority as a sort of super-governor of Texas and neighboring provinces, only now he held that authority under a Mexican flag, having abandoned his Spanish loyalties along with most other Mexican royalists in 1821. Perhaps he was self-conscious of his own flip-flop, perhaps it was out of some sense of Catholic decency, or perhaps it was just a political ploy to placate San Antonians But in 1822, Arredondo finally allowed them to venture out to the Medina battlefield and collect the remains of their loved ones. He also extended general pardons to the many families who had fled, acquiescing in some cases to the return of their confiscated property. For example, by 1822, Erasmo Seguin and his son Juan had been allowed to return, as had Ángel and José Antonio Navarro and their cousins in the Ruiz and Veramendi families, all in time to help collect the bones from the Medina battlefield and give them a more fitting final resting place. The royalist faction in San Antonio had always been small, and it had only contracted further with Arredondo's campaign of terror. The Zambrano brothers remained prominent, yet won few allies to their cause. The Spanish Royalist faction would become the Mexican Centralist faction, yet in San Antonio, it would fairly well die off with the elder Zambranos in the next decade. Other old Royalists drifted into the Republican camp, like José Antonio Garza, who married a Menchaca, cousin to the leader of the San Antonio rebels in 1813. Garza was a land developer and a businessman from an old San Antonio family that had built one of the largest private stone buildings in town in 1734, and which would stand until the 1900s. Garza became the first person in Texas to coin money. On one side of the coin, he placed his initials, J-A-G, and the year, 1818. On the obverse, he stamped a single, lone star. These were the only Texas coins in circulation for nearly 20 years or so, and at least one historian speculates that this was the source of the symbol that would come to represent the state. In a sense, the experience of the previous decade had made almost all San Antonians Republicans, And of course, we're talking about Republican with a little R here and not trying to make any connection to current American political parties. The Republican faction in the new independent Mexico morphed into Federalists, proponents of a federal political system of limited, devolved powers with decision-making housed at the local level. In San Antonio, at least, this was a relatively moderate position, and one that most San Antonians, who had long suffered from government neglect, could agree with. And perhaps it was this new consensus that helped heal the wounds of the previous decade, allowing men who just a few years prior were on opposing sides of a civil war to be back in business with each other and sitting next to one another on the city council by 1824. Remember, too, that the entire population of San Antonio in 1824 was only about 1,800 people, smaller than many high schools in the city today. We're talking about a town where almost literally everyone knew everyone, and everyone else was only one or two degrees of marriage or compadrazgo away. Reconciliation in such a small community was, frankly, a necessity. And so the town rebuilt itself, one family at a time. Erasmo Seguin slowly pieced back together his land holdings and once again rose to prominence, representing San Antonio at the Mexican Constitutional Convention in 1823. By 1824, Ángel Navarro was back in business running his family store in town, 
after having been run out of Arredondo's royalist army because of his brother's Republican activities. His brother, José Antonio Navarro, by 1824 was smuggling goods again from Louisiana, speculating in land, and getting himself elected to various city, state, and federal offices. Juan Martín de Veramendi married Navarro's sister and would get himself elected as an alternate to the 1823 Mexican Constitutional Convention and as a delegate to the Coahuila Constitutional Convention of 1827. José Francisco Ruiz, also a cousin by marriage to the Veramendis and Navarros, would take on the Indian challenge. He was one of the few survivors of the Battle of Medina, and as such, he had been forced to take refuge amongst the Comanches, with whom he had long had dealings. He would live amongst them for a total of eight years, eventually taking a secret Comanche wife and writing the authoritative tract on Texas Indians during the period. In 1822, Ruiz was recommissioned in the now Mexican army as a lieutenant and sent to negotiate a peace treaty with the Comanches, amongst whom he had lived but who had grown bold during the years of instability occasioned by the Mexican War of Independence. Ruiz was successful. His renewed Comanche peace treaty reconfirmed exclusivity for San Antonio as the sole point of trade with Comanches, and it recognized the integrity of Comanche lands, committing Mexicans not to enter them without proper passports. By the end of the 1820s, Ruiz had risen to lieutenant colonel and commander of the local Compañía Volante stationed in the Alamo. With the tumult of the previous decade, almost all regular army forces had been drawn back into the center of Mexico, and defense of the outer provinces like Texas had been left to local militias. In 1825, San Antonio took over responsibility for its own defense, refusing the poor-quality conscripts that the regular army continued to send north. By the late 1820s, most of the soldiers in and around San Antonio were in fact San Antonians, and were often funded by San Antonians as well, as in 1822 when José Antonio Navarro led the formation of a local bank just to make payroll for the soldiers. During these early years of the New Mexican Republic, when everything was wide open and anything was possible, San Antonians took the initiative in other ways too to finally create the society that they had always dreamed of. First, they unified San Antonio's diverse civilian, presidial, and mission communities into a single government, the Ciudad de San Fernando de Bejar, most frequently referred to at the time as Bejar, or Bayer, by some of the newer settlers arriving from the east. Next, they set about all the inglamorous work of running a city. The city council reconfirmed traditional taxes on fandangos, of which there were apparently more than one a day in 1827, and they set licensing requirements for the freight and retail businesses. They conducted an annual census. The city councilman and mayor were also the actual police force, patrolling the streets nightly from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. and running the city jail. They established a Junta de Sanidad, a public health commission, passed laws on public sanitation to protect the acequias that still supplied most of the town's water, and responded to the smallpox epidemic of 1831 and the cholera epidemic of 1834 with tragic disregard to their own lives. This was a community that was resourceful beyond compare, managing to develop their own smallpox vaccine in 1832 from an infected cow based only on treatises that had made their slow way here to the edge of civilization. San Antonio was also at the forefront of several initiatives that most Mexican Federalists were still only fantasizing about. San Antonio was perhaps the first community in northern Mexico to establish free public schools. The first efforts at this had begun under Royalist Juan Manuel Zambrano in 1811 during his brief tenure as interim president of the counter-revolutionary junta. In 1826, lands were set aside to fund these new San Antonio schools, and in 1828, the schools were made entirely free to the public. The poorest San Antonians still struggled to find the time and resources necessary to enroll their children, but an important foundation had been laid. In terms of legal innovations, San Antonio became the first and maybe only place in Mexico to make use of juries. Juries had no place in Spain's continental civil legal system. They arose in San Antonio out of practicality and out of proximity to the United States. Practically, juries, or panels of hombres buenos as they called them, a term rich with contemporary political humor, made a lot of sense for San Antonio, who depended theoretically on courts as far away as Monclova, Saltillo, and Guadalajara. Initially used only for minor matters, juries proved to be quite effective in administering local justice, and their jurisdiction soon began to expand. 
As it did, the parties involved began to insist on jurors of igual clase, or a jury of their peers, as we might translate it, a direct influence of the North American legal system with which many San Antonians had now become broadly familiar. San Antonians were especially excited by the opportunity presented by the 1823 Mexican Constitutional Convention to finally create the kind of government they had sacrificed so much for. The San Antonio City Council, the only government in the entire province of Texas, sent rancher and former militia commander Erasmo Seguin to represent the province with a broad but unequivocal charge to ensure local control of their land, their laws, and their people. To accomplish this initially, San Antonio had aspired to recognition of Texas as a separate state in the New Mexican Republic. Yet Texas was so scarcely populated, boasting maybe 3,000 people in a nation of 10 million, that statehood was an impossibility. If it had insisted on being an independent political subdivision, it would have most likely been treated as a territory, in which case all of its lands and laws would have been overseen by the national government in Mexico City, a worst-case scenario for San Antonio if there ever was one. Seguin realized that he needed to adopt a different tactic to ensure local control of San Antonio's land, laws, and people. Early in the Constitutional Convention, neighboring Coahuila had just won recognition as a full state within the New Mexican Republic. Coahuila was represented by Miguel Ramos Arispe, a dynamic former priest and one of the most vocal proponents of federalism in the New Mexican Republic. In addition to sharing an ideology, Coahuilans shared a long history with San Antonio, which had strong political, cultural, and familial ties with Monclova and Saltillo. Seguin struck up an alliance with Ramos Arispe, and Coahuila and Texas were unified under one flag, albeit only until, quote, such time as Texas should be able to figure as a state by itself, end quote. In the meantime, Texas was established as a quasi-autonomous department within the state of Coahuila y Texas, whose department chief, by convention, would always be a San Antonian. In truth, many positive things came out of this union with Coahuila. First, San Antonians were able to finally free up some of the land sitting idle in the public domain all around them. Thanks to the efforts of San Antonio's first state legislator, the self-proclaimed Baron de Bastrop, one of Coahuila's first acts as a state would be a colonization law, opening up vast new lands for settlement. And this state control of the public domain would leave a valuable legacy for the Republic and later American state of Texas, which, unique among American states, retains control of all of its public lands. Second, by joining with Coahuila, San Antonians were able to win important economic concessions at the state and federal levels to promote trade and industry in their province, which was the poorest in the Mexican Republic at the time. In 1823, Texas won an exemption on import duties for seven years. In 1827, they obtained an exemption from excise taxes on corn, beans, and chiles. In 1831, the state granted them a six-year exemption on livestock taxes. These were meager but necessary incentives to private enterprise at the time, and small recompense for the dangers of living on the frontier and the horrors that San Antonians had experienced in the recent Mexican War of Independence. But now, trade barriers were collapsing, promising to create fantastic new wealth, especially for a community like San Antonio, which saw itself potentially sitting at the, quote, center of an extensive commercial system linking Louisiana, Coahuila, Chihuahua, and New Mexico, end quote, in the words of historian Jesus de la Teja. Third, with new colonization laws and generous trade provisions, San Antonians were finally able to attract immigrants to their underpopulated state. And not just any immigrants. Sometime in 1820, San Antonians became vocal proponents of Anglo-American immigration to Texas. San Antonians had long trade contacts with their neighbors to the east, and Anglo-Americans had precisely what San Antonians most lacked, capital and technology. Spain's mercantile system had always starved the province of the money it needed to invest in improvements, yet the Anglo-American empire always seemed to be able to find more capital. And these Anglo-Americans were enterprising. They brought new technologies like grist mills and cotton gins that could exponentially increase the productivity of the province and the size of the economy. In 1820, the San Antonio City Council had begun to actively lobby the governor to allow Anglo-immigration into Texas. In December of that same year, the gift of a particularly stubborn impresario, or land agent, fell into their lap. 
Moses Austin was a 59-year-old, twice-bankrupted businessman who had already actually been a successful Spanish impresario, albeit in a different land. After his first bankruptcy in 1798, he had become a Spanish subject and brought a large number of American families to Spanish Missouri, which of course became American Missouri soon thereafter. After his next bankruptcy in the Panic of 1819, Austin looked to New Spain once again, and in December of 1820, he made his way to San Antonio to present a colonization proposal to the then-Spanish governor. Initially, at least, the proposal did not go well, but Austin had the good fortune of running into an old friend there on the Plaza de Armas. He had first met the self-proclaimed Baron de Bastrop in a boarding house in Spanish Missouri 20 years prior. By 1820, the Baron had risen to become a city councilman and soon to be state legislator from San Antonio. You might also remember him as Father Miguel Hidalgo's wayward guide in 1811, who instead of leading him to San Antonio, led the revolutionary father to his ultimate capture and death. The fact is that the self-proclaimed Baron was a complicated man, who moved on the edges of the law and who operated with a strong opportunistic streak. But in this instance, he was the man that Austin needed, because the Baron knew that San Antonians had been looking for a test case just like this one to rally behind. The San Antonians needed a law-abiding, upstanding Anglo-American to help them convince the governor of the virtue of their proposal to settle Anglo-Americans in Texas, and ideally somebody with a track record to show that he could actually do it. Once the Baron brought Austin before the San Antonio City Council, they wholeheartedly endorsed his proposal, each signing off individually on his petition. Of course, a lot was going on in New Spain slash Mexican politics at this time. Specifically, allegiances were flip-flopping, monarchs were falling, and a new nation was rising from the ashes. Moses Austin died in June 1821 in the midst of all this turmoil, and according to legend, begged his son Stephen from his deathbed to carry on the dream. When Stephen F. Austin arrived in now Mexican Texas later that year, he was met by Erasmo Seguin, who had patiently waited for him in Natchitoches, Louisiana for three months, so excited was he about the prospect of this new settlement. And although saddened by the news of Austin's father's passing, Seguin had the happy privilege of informing Austin that his colony had been approved, the last signature having been, in a sad twist of historical irony, the Butcher General Arredondos. It was the San Antonio City Council who had kept the dream of Austin's colony alive. Historian Raul Ramos says it well, quote, Austin's settlement project would not have succeeded, or for that matter, even started, without Tejano support and encouragement, end quote. And by Tejano, what we really mean is San Antonian. But what this means, too, was that San Antonians then took a special protective interest in these Anglo settlers. At the state and federal levels, San Antonians became tireless proponents of immigration and of these immigrants' needs. Throughout the 1820s, San Antonians and Anglo immigrants would cooperate on dozens of colonization projects, to the benefit of each. San Antonians got access to trade, goods, and business partnerships that they wouldn't have otherwise. Anglos got land and new markets. Ideologically, many San Antonians in the 1820s were, in fact, starting to observe curious similarities between their hard-won Republican, liberal, and Federalist ideals and the emerging ideals of Jacksonian-age Americans, which we'll discuss in the next episode. San Antonians' success in finally bringing about their long-held political objectives empowered them and only strengthened their sense of their own distinctness. Around 1828, a traveler noted that San Antonians had begun referring to their supposed countrymen from the interior as, quote, extranjeros, foreigners. San Antonians had even developed a unique style of dress, favoring a mixture of fashions from Mexico, New Orleans, and North America, all tinged by frontier accents like leather and wide-brimmed, short-crowned felt hats. San Antonio's long isolation and bloody struggles had given birth to a truly unique society, but a society that was at last feeling itself heard and supported. The decade of the War of Mexican Independence had left San Antonio depopulated and devastated. The 1820s were going much better. If only the story had ended here. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. 
Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I'd like to recommend my friend Stephen Harrigan's book, They Came From the Sky. It is, in truth, merely the first chapter of his new history of Texas that he'll publish in 2019. Harrigan is one of, or perhaps the best writer in Texas today, a storyteller who's as comfortable writing fiction as he is writing history. If you want a great example of his fiction writing, read The Gates of the Alamo, which touches directly on our subject matter as well. <laughs>